Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Thank you all for joining me for another edition of Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by my old friend, Wendell Mackey, who is co-founder of Channing Capital Management, along with Rodney Harrington and Eric McKissick in 2003. Channing is roughly a $4 billion US equity investment management company located in Chicago. Wendell, great to see you again. Chaz, thank you and appreciate the opportunity to reconnect. Well, one of the things that I wanted to lead off with is just your background and your career path. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you got started and what led you to start Channing. Sure, thank you. And it's a, an interesting career path, Chaz. As you may or may not know, I started out as an IT professional uh, coming out of undergrad out of Howard University and quickly realized the world of finance was you know, calling my name, if you will. Uh, while I enjoyed uh, my brief stint in IT, uh, finance is just all encapsulating. And I had a cousin who was in the business who started a small money management firm out of Milwaukee and Detroit. I read his footsteps and watched his career path and just knew that, hey, that is what I wanted to do. So I took the opportunity in Kellogg to slate the program that I was in, an MBA program, to come out with a degree in finance and marketing. And from there, I went to PNC Bank. So I left the uh, warm shores of Chicago to go to the warmer shores of Pittsburgh. And uh, what a great time that was. There I was able to do their uh, management training program and then go into corporate finance. Uh, PNC at that point in time was a little bit of a disjointed organization, very powerful organization, but they had branches and offices in Pittsburgh, Philly, Louisville, and, and parts therein. Um, I was able to finally get over to the investment management research side in Philly, where you are. Probably know a lot of the professionals there. And that really launched my career. From there, it's been smaller institutional asset management firms. You know, Chaz, even though I was born out of a bigger institution such as PNC, I got my real entrepreneurial um, sort of taste when I joined NCM Capital in 1993. And I'd say the rest is history. Um, the introduction to many wonderful clients, uh, many just established esteemed professionals that are alums of NCM. We had a really good time and, uh, and we did a lot of good for our clients. But when you have that entrepreneurial bug, as you know, Chaz, you always think you can do it better than the boss. And you don't realize <laughs> how the boss really walked on water until later. But you always think that, hey, I can do better. And as a young uh, upstart, if you will, in my 30s, I say, hey, listen, you know what? I, I just feel like I've got an eye and a nose for this. And uh, fortunately, I was being from Chicago. And I didn't mention that, but I'm a native Chicagoan. Yep. Um, obviously, uh, aerial capital is the, the genesis of smaller managers, and particularly if you talk about smaller managers who happen to be uh, somewhat of minority ownership, um, they were kind of the gold standard. And uh, we, it was friendly competition against Ariel all the time, but it was a lot of huge respect for them. So Eric is someone who I got to know as I was coming up, you know, always had an open door, always talked strategy, talked shop, Buffett disciples. And we realized that we had a lot in common. And it's interesting because we would go to client meetings and see each other there as we had a couple of common clients. And that's where the uh, friendship and kinship started. Right around, I'd say, 2002 or so, uh, you know, I got the word that, you know, from Eric that he really was ready to, to quote unquote, do this. I'm like, you really ready? I mean, are you sure? Because, you know, 
I was ready at any point in time. And it was, it, Chaz, it was a naive ready because, you know, you're so full of spirit. Now your balance sheet isn't as big as your spirit, but that's okay. When you're an entrepreneur, you just ride or die. And we got together, talked more about an idea. Um, and after his uh, proverbial one-year um, stint of sitting out from Ariel, he, Rodney, and I got together and the rest is history. We thought about Channing Capital as a firm to try to do the things that we had seen other asset managers not quite capture. So at the core was that Buffett philosophy. We thought we could do more with it, and we have since then. Well, it's impressive. Uh, and you know that through our relationship, we've talked about other minority-owned business enterprises, specifically African-American-owned um, business enterprises. And in addition to John Rogers and Ariel, you've got Paul Vieira at Ernest. You had Eddie Brown at Brown Investment. There were several that achieved some real scale and sustained success. But I would put Channing now clearly in that category just because of the length of time over which you've done it. I mean, you mentioned Maceo Sloan effectively and NCM Capital who had a very good business for a while. Um, there have been others who have had some decent runs. But as you well know, and we've talked about, Wendell, a lot of the specifically Black-owned entrepreneurial investment businesses haven't achieved either staying power or real scale. Why do you think Channing has been able to build a solid, sustainable, loyal clientele and, and accompanying business over almost 20 years? Chess, I think our love for smaller companies has served us well. One of the things that we used to have discussions about in our earlier days uh, as Channing is, are we in the right spaces? Can we have a space where we can stand the test of time, have a bit of a branding, and be known as, quote unquote, the go-to guys or go-to guys and gals. And small cap was it. In the public markets, small cap is about as close as you can get to private equity the way we do it. As you know, we have tight relationships with our company managements. And we put them to the task to achieve the goals that we set out for them, as well as the goals they set out for themselves. And so being in the right space, it, it sort of gave us a layer, I don't want to call it protection, a layer of insulation, if you will, because you would always need that small company service, if you will. And from there, that, that's been our beachhead. We've gotten known over time. It, it wasn't always, well, excuse me, it's never easy. But I think when you repeatedly do something over and over and over again, when the consultants and the clients hear the same stories over and over again, and they can see a pattern in your track record over and over again, and when you get through some critical times, I mean, it's easy when the market is going up. Uh, it, it's, you know, when the tide rolls out, you can kind of see, you know, who's, who's wearing what or not wearing what. And, and I think it's just that consistent prodding and being who we say we are and having the proof to back it up. Proof in the numbers, proof in the patterns and characteristics, proof in the messaging. And also, too, Chaz, as you know, and as you wisely counseled me on numerous occasions, what do we talk about all the time? Running the business right. Chaz, we haven't gotten everything right, but it's not because we either weren't trying weren't aware or didn't have good intentions. I think people respect that about me. Yeah, and I, th I think your focus, which is basically what you just alluded to, has been strong and consistent. People have respected that as an investment engine. I think it's been a solidly repeatable and solidly returning investment engine. So on a rolling quarterly basis, I haven't seen the numbers, but I would venture that if you looked at your numbers on a rolling quarterly basis, back from the inception of all these strategies, I would bet that each of your strategies has outperformed its benchmark the vast majority of the time. 
and you haven't had many significant down periods. That is true. I mean, the down periods are explainable by market behavior. You know, naturally, when you hit you know, some serious air pockets in the market, you can be disjointed. But I think for us, what our clients tell us most times is that we deliver what they expect of us. So in other words, we're there to play a position in the portfolio, not to go all over the place in their allocation. And so when it comes time for our strategy and style to perform, we do. Of course, there's going to be times where it's not as good but it's no surprise to the clients. So when they can slot you, they feel real comfortable. I think that speaks to the relationships you have, the trust they have in you, the job that Rodney has done. Let's go back for a second to the focus. So the business has been a capacity constrained U.S. equity manager for almost all of those years. But some years ago, we started talking about other extensions that would make sense and other capabilities that you might add. And you got to chatting with a woman who had her own Um, small international equity business, Josephine Jimenez, who had run, I think, 1522 was the name of her business. Yes, Victoria 1522. Uh, Exactly. And that was an interesting small business that came upon an inflection point. And the two of you got talking and you decided to effectively start Channing Global with Josephine. Tell me a little bit about how that got started. And if you would, maybe just a bit about the structure so people can understand how you thought about making Channing larger and giving additional capability, but you didn't do it just within Channing. You created a separate LLC. Sure. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about Channing Global. It has been a really, really fortuitous move uh, internet into international equities with the team we have at Channing Global. When you meet Josephine, she is just a ball of energy and she just eats, sleeps and drinks the international markets. Yeah, that passion comes out from the time you start talking to her. When we met her, um, and, and let's go back a little bit, as we were building out Channing Capital, one of our advisory board meetings, this is probably 2011 or 2012 timeframe, we started to talk about what can we do more? Because as you said, we are, we are in capacity constrained categories and you don't want to have your firm just be relying upon one strategy. It's okay to be beachheaded on a strategy, but you have to have offshoots from there to be able to create all the legs of the stool. And we noodle around a lot of different things, but again, it's, it's just sort of boardroom talk at that point in time. Even out of those meetings, though, we sort of put uh, in front of the management team with, with Rodney to lead, explore the, the various initiatives a little further. Let's see where we can take it. And that means asking some questions of clients uh, and consultants, seeing who's out there. Consultants can be a wealth of knowledge because they will let you know who they respect. And sometimes, you know, firms, it's really, really hard to be a PM, the sole business manager, the marketer, the sort of operations lead. It's tough to QB all of those positions because, as you know, the PMs, they need to focus to be able to run the numbers and run the team, if you will. And Josephine was doing all of that at Victoria. She did it successfully for a while. But as you know, sometimes you, know, you had too much straw on a camel's back you know, it can buckle a little bit. And we had just got the word that so many people liked her and wanted to see her land somewhere where she can kind of revive and go forward in a partnership where she didn't have to do everything. And that was key. And so in sitting down with her in uh, 2017, I think is when I first met her, it was just clear to me at that point in time, uh, she was everything that Rodney had said she was. And we had talked to several people, Chaz. It wasn't like we met Josephine and that was it. We met some others as well. 
But I think just the humility, the desire to want to go out there and make it bigger, the team attitude, you know, wanting to be a player on the team, Josephine had all of that. And, and here's the key. Her network is something that is just tremendous. I mean, she had it in her head how to build all this out and shared it with us. And it was impressive because of her network. She had some ideas and things that we just hadn't really thought about, especially with the use of you know, research consultants. Because she knows people that are on the ground in some of these critical regions, particularly in China, that any emerging strategy that you're going to have is going to be somewhat beachheaded on China. She has on the ground contacts there as well as other places. We thought about it, thought long and hard about it. And it was one of those things, Chaz, where the person fit and you had to make the process go faster because that person likely wasn't going to be there forever. And, and we just moved into overdrive and we moved ahead of our time. But that's what business is about sometimes. You know, when you see the opportunity, sometimes you've got to seize it and seize it quickly and figure out how to make everything work. And so in late 2017, we came out with Channing Global. Um, and it was at the same time, roughly the same time, we had gotten to a point. You know, we had talked to Eric for a while about his you know, future intentions. Eric, Eric had done a wonderful job in his business, and he was just a known entity. And it was a thing where Eric's interests, like all of ours, are varied. And thus being you know, younger guys and, and hungry and really wanted to take this through, and Eric realized he had proven what he needed to prove in the business and was very happy to work with us on a transition. So we, we moved to buy his share out. And that helped us to be able to start Channing Global such that we can be able to share the pieces of the pie were necessary for the team there. Because obviously in the early days, you can pay people only, only but so much. You've got to make sure that they have their requisite slices of the pie to keep them engaged and going. So late, late 17 is when uh, Channing Global was, was launched out of Miami. And again, through Josephine's resources, we've got about seven or eight people there and growing. And they're up to roughly around 500 million now and growing. Interest level is high. I think the consultants and clients have been able to see the track records get off the three years plus, if you will. And uh, it's, it's, it's been good. Um, you know, there's always some things that you're going to wish you'd done a little different. Uh, things don't necessarily come along the schedule that you like them to come. But I mean, we're, we're seeing the fruits of the labor now. and We're, we're quite intent, quite happy. Well, I thought it was interesting that you created Channing Global. You didn't just ask her to be a PM of Channing launching international strategies. I don't think that might have ultimately come to fruition just because of her entrepreneurialism and desire to have some level of independence. But now you've got a company that is the Channing brand and is co-owned by the Channing owners and Josephine. And that has worked well. And that seems to have been received well by allocators, manager, research folks and clients. Absolutely. They, at first, were more of the ilk of, all right, well, we know you've got this. They'd ask a few questions, and it was sort of, you know, let us know how it's coming along, if you will. And there wasn't a lot of questions at first. I think, though, as Channing Capital started to grow, people started to look at us a little different. It seems like a light went on where people realized that not only have we done a good job for our clients in the domestic strategies that we were in, but we were clearly open for business in terms of categories that Channing Global offers. And so now what you have is they're looking at us, Chaz, the way you would want them to look at us. It might start out looking at small cap or mid or you know, our large cap strategy, but it comes down to like any other money management firm. What all do you offer? Oh, wow. Okay. You've got international develop or you've got emerging markets. Let's take a look. So that's the point that you want to get to. Took a little longer than expected because of the pandemic, but it's here now and it feels pretty good. 
I'm encouraged by the success. I mean, it's taken a little while, which I think is going to dovetail well into the next topic, which is a topic that is near and dear to your and my hearts and, and the discussion we've had, which is why aren't there more successful minority-owned, specifically Black-owned and led investment management companies? We chatted about a few in the beginning, but those are kind of the some of the pioneers of the space and folks that have been super successful, but we've talked about why there aren't more minority-owned firms, why there aren't potentially more minority owners as entrepreneurs, as founders of such businesses. And I think where you and I have come out, Wendell, that we could unpack a little bit for this conversation is that it's so much more than being a good investor. It's so much more than having some good ideas and having a good resume. And you effectively said that a few minutes ago, which is the business skill required to run Channing thoughtfully, the functional expertise that you've had to hire across research, marketing, technology, operations, compliance, et cetera, and then the outsourcing relationships that go along with those hires. It's just so much more than being a decent investor. And that's why, at least in previous conversations that you and I have had, I think we've come out on, we would love for there to be more opportunity. As you know, Rosemont has backed several minority-owned firms, but it's very challenging to be able to get to a point of reasonable success when the mountain is so high and the sacrifice has to be great. It's not just a case of we'll throw more money at it. You've got to be in it for a very long haul and you've got to have business chops. And I would say that the vast majority of candidates actually don't fit the profile of both having the business expertise, willing to make potentially the compensation sacrifice in terms of the equity that uh, they should hold dear, and that hopefully will be worth something someday. But the facts still remain. There are just very few that seem to be able to kind of get past the first or second inning. What advice would you give folks, Black-owned, minority-owned, women-owned, really, Anyone of color, anyone that is not, let's call it an old line, traditional white male investment establishment group, thinking about starting their own firm, spinning out from somebody else. What kind of advice, what kinds of issues would you have them focus on? Sure. Well, it's a lot to unpack as usual when I talk to you, Chaz, but uh, let me try to break this down a bit because uh, you threw a lot at me. Maybe let's put the right lens on the issue. I think, and this is just my experience, this business is tough. And so I would agree with the sightings you made about there not being enough or desirable excuse me, number of African-American-owned firms. Um, I think there have been a lot of people come into this business, you know, regardless of uh, racial background, that have failed. Um, you see it in the hedge fund world all the time. Startup, charge two and 20. You know, a year or two later, gone, and then re-emerge again somewhere else. That is generally not the case uh, in the African-American community. Now, I hate to say it, but you, you literally do have one shot, and uh, you got to make that work. And, and some of that is going to be prayer and luck. Let's face it, Chaz. Luck has been on our side to a degree. But number two is getting to the core of your question. It goes back to my answer to a previous question, which is, the spaces you're getting into. I, if, I, if we had to do it all over again, I really wish that a lot of African-American firms would have went into the specialty spaces. There were too many, I think, in that large cap space, Chess, and that large cap space has been tough on everyone. As soon as you had all the fast money types of options out here, 
hedge funds doing all types of exotic things, leverage being lumped upon strategies. It has made the market a very fast moving entity, if you will. Uh, not that it wasn't always fast moving, but it's even more so now. And with that, I think a number of large cap strategies in general have washed out. And unfortunately, a number of African-American firms were subject to that. If you look at the space, you know, what we, we went through this phase where you know, indexing was high for that category. I think that's maybe shifting out a little bit. That pressure is still there. It, it is, I can see you look on your face. Um, yeah. it, it is just not as a desirable space. And so therefore, remember I talked about staying power. Canada didn't have it. Even though you may have been able to put assets up and look good for a while, that anomaly that may have been within your strategy as a large cap manager went away at some point in time, and then you end up handing the assets all back. That's a great point that you make, Wendell, about being aware of where flows are moving in and where flows are coming from. And the broad market, large cap, active equity space has been something like the great exodus. That's where all the money comes from to fund other strategies over the last 10 plus years, to fund private equity, to fund real asset, to fund credit, to fund niche specialist equity investment strategies, whether capacity constrained or ESG or other. So that's, I agree with you, you know, picking investment sectors and capabilities that are clearly in demand and where you have a following. I think oftentimes folks that you and I would know don't have the following that they think they have. And as you and I have discussed, it's just so hard to create anything from zero or from a very small beginning. People want to watch you for a few years. They're going to tell you that, well, get to some asset metric. You know, once you get to 500 million, a billion, a few billion, and sometimes that bar seems to be moving indefinitely further out. So it takes a lot of staying power. And I think that, that a lot of investors of color would do well to align themselves with really well-run firms where they can become equity owners, where they can have a certain amount of autonomy and or build their investment records and their teams and their engines. And then at some point, it may make sense for them to go on their own and they can take the risk and they build up perhaps enough uh, liquidity and net worth to be able to go a few years where the point of transition makes for lean times. I think sometimes that's, it's just ironic that that's not often the first consideration. It's not kind of how long can I go with making either less income or a firm that is subscale for a long period of time. But in fact, as you know, Wendell, the clock is ticking. And I know when we see things and you say, oh God, here's a $300 million firm, or maybe it's a private equity group that is backed and run by whomever, whether it's folks of color or not, but they have two or 300 million on their fourth or fifth fund after 10 or 12 years, or they have 600 million in large cap equities after 10 years, everybody will ask, what's going on there? Why is it that, why hasn't that become more successful? No, no doubt about it. And I think my second point that you just brought out is relationships. And I just think that's the key these days. Uh, and I, these days and, and days before, I think when you're coming out of the box as a firm of color, I do believe it's very key to have a strong partner alongside you. It doesn't mean that that partner has to be necessarily uh, equity. It could be debt, be some type of agreement. Uh, it can be a cause. But I think, as you said, when you have that capital alongside you or behind you, that helps. It's not easy to get. 
But it is one of the thoughtful things that investors need to do if they want to come out on their own is that I think these days you absolutely need to be partnered with someone. The marketplace will look at and say, all right, I like that partnership. I'm not sitting here worried about you know, the firm being out of business tomorrow, if you will. And, you know, you put your money alongside uh, your, that, that partner's money and you figure out a way to you know, go get it, if you will. Um, because these days and times, I just think the waiting time to be able to get your firm to scale is just going to take longer. You don't have like what we had where you had the emerging managers willing to give you that early shot and they had money for U.S. domestic equities. I mean, these days, uh, those emerging managers have all sort of moved their businesses more towards international. Right. Um, and they seem to be you know, flourishing and doing well over there. But from a domestic standpoint, you know, the pension funds, public pension funds at least, have sort of taken that in-house, if you will. And, and they're either, they've, they've either got who they want or they're you know, funding someone. But on the domestic side, it's just a little bit less of the overall pension funds focus, if you will. And so relationships, if you can get them, are very, very important because they just, they open up doors, they provide uh, a perception uh, of stability. And in a lot of cases, they provide stability by hard capital. Well, as you know, Wendell, I mean, this is really a critical point is you're not quite sure just how strong your relationships are until you go to start a firm. And that's one of the key things that we ask when people are talking about starting their firm and how big they're going to be and what an awesome investment it's going to be. And I said, well, why don't you put all your relationships in three categories? The first are the people that you feel best about. You're most sure that they will join you. They would be willing to come with you, even in the face of reasonable litigation and or uh, a show of legal force from the former employer, because they've acted legally and responsibly, and they're trying to serve their clients, and they're trying to work out a way for them to get on their own. But those are their strongest relationships. The second category are the ones that you're not sure about. You think that they're strong. They may have other factors affecting whether or not they can move to a small firm that has a small asset base, just the parameters of their particular investment institution. So that's kind of a question mark. And then C, the third group are the relationships that you have no expectation of coming, or you have no expectation that the assets uh, underlying those relationships will follow you. Perhaps they're in mutual funds run by the parent companies mutual fund infrastructure and business. Perhaps there are third-party relationships that the PM and the investment team really don't have much glue with or connection with. But you break it down that way as you're thinking about starting a firm and all of a sudden, kind of these great ambitions and how we're going to move billions of dollars can become a much smaller and more fragile number. Before we close, Wendell, let's talk a little bit about how you see the near-term future for Channing. Obviously, it's a very tricky and challenging investment universe out there, and you're spending a lot of your time focused on the investment engine and focused on investment decisions. But if you want to step back for a second and just share, what are you thinking about when you have some time, whether it's on an airplane or on the weekend, when, when you don't feel like you're under the gun as you might be in a normal business day? What are kind of the deeper thoughts that you think about with regard to the long-term health and welfare of Channing? Sure. And it comes down to uh, probably uh, three prime principles that I'm always thinking about. I think first is clients. And, and I, Friday and I definitely always want to know what's on their mind because that's who we serve. You always want to make sure you're doing a good job for them and that you're meeting their expectations and that you're communicating with them. Because let's face it, you need those folks to continue to go forward. 
You know, if anything slips there, and it's a very dynamic world. You, you just don't know all the times uh, what could be going on, you know, behind the curtain and behind the closed doors. And just want to make sure that you're doing the right things there. So we always want to make sure we've got great outreach, good, strong messaging, and a good dialogue. I'd say secondarily, and it, you know, that's like 1A to client. 1B would be you know, performance. You want to be making all the investments necessary to make sure that you're doing all you can to try to generate the longer-term performance numbers that are needed for the clients. Not talking about trying to chase short-term trends or trying to evade this, escape that. If you can, that's fine. But within the natural flow of your strategy, you do the best job you can. I mean, sometimes you just got to take it on the chin. It just may not be your time. But the key is to be prepared for when it is your time and that you're filling your role. You cannot get distracted on a lot of things that are going on out here because they'll come and go. So you got to stay principled. And, and that means, Chaz, making the requisite investments in technology. You don't ever want to get too comfortable that your strategy is bulletproof. You want to take an, you know, an honest look and, 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 hey, look, it's not a bad thing to have others come in and take a look at it once in a while. Just to make sure you are who you say you are and that nothing has changed or where you may be, have to make some modifications to, to stay competitive. So there should not be any expenses withheld for investing in your firm. I think uh, number three is the people. It's really interesting out here now because we've seen this in a couple of our portfolio company CEOs where post-COVID, they just want to do something different. And it's odd to see a public company CEO say, you know what, this is a good time to hand the keys over to someone else I was in the trenches from 2020, 21 and early 22. And now I'm ready to spend more time with family because I spent so much of my time and energy getting the business through COVID, taking out the expenses, doing a big acquisition. And so if you see it at that level, you know, pool of talent here is tricky because, you know, people want more. And so you got to be prepared to give them more, but you also got to understand what you're getting for giving. And so you don't give just to give. You better make sure that if you are paying up for this talent, you're getting everything you need to get. You know, I have a different view of life, if you will. You and I have know each other, so this is not going to surprise you. But, you know, you go to a client meeting and clients going to go to the underperformers first. They always do. That's just, you know, a reflex. And it's legitimate. I get a kick out of it because you already know they're going, they're going there. You're going to be prepared. And uh, if you're a value manager and you kept a company too long, you should expect that you're just going to be a long conversation on that, right? But the minute you decide you're going to change somebody in your organization, arms, bells, why'd you do that? Why you? Okay, so wait a minute. You're on me about keeping this company too long in your portfolio. But if I decide I've got an underperforming talent and I want to change that, whoa, that, oh, taboo. Hey, look, let me run my business. But I think the key here is that you have to always make sure you're getting what you pay for in this business. And also, too, when there are problems, they have to be addressed. You can't sweep things under the rug in, in any facet of your organization. You got to address them quicker. That's probably the thing I've learned as a business person is that get there fast. You got to take the hit, take the hit. You'll be better for it over the long run. Couldn't agree with you more on that last point. I never made a decision that I said, oh, God, I made that too soon usually made the decisions after years of fretting about it and debating what would happen. But I think the other thing that you really touched on, Wendell, is just stay dynamic. Stay dynamic as an organization. Sometimes turnover, um, however unfortunate, is a good thing. And, and even though that's something that you've got to explain. We've, we've had a nice chat. We could clearly go longer, but it's always refreshing to talk with you. I hope to get to Chicago before too long. And I hope that as you almost entering your 20th year, that Channing and Channing Global prospers in the uh, 
challenges that lie ahead. Thank you, Chaz. You've always been uh, very kind. And it's just interesting how you become a quasi mentor to, to myself and to Rodney. And, uh, you, know, you know, our running joke, Chaz. <laughs> I'm introducing you. I'm like, Chaz is the guy who acts like he's got money in Channing, even though he doesn't. That's how much he cares. <laughs> well, we've had fun doing it. So absolutely appreciate the time, Wendell, and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Chaz. Likewise.